Paul talks about in, um, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He writes to Timothy and he says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. And later on, when he writes to Timothy again and to Timothy, he says, I have fought the good fight. And, and we think about that, we think, well, what's Paul talking about? When he says fight the good fight, when he says he's finished the race, he's, he's fought the good fight, obviously he's not talking about boxing, you know. This is not an MMA thing, okay. What he's talking about there is this reality that the Christian experience is often more like a holy war than it is a holiday. And it's like that because there's a reality that, that when we decide to follow Jesus, when we decide that He is who He said He is, He's Savior and Lord, it's not when everything just starts going smoothly. There's this war that begins inside of us. Because when we decide to follow Jesus, we put our faith in what He's done for us through His death and His resurrection, there's this new life that comes into us. There's a new nature that we get. God's Spirit Himself dwells in us, and we begin to have this new desire, this new heart. We want to know what He's like. We want to follow Him. We want to obey Him. But we still have this old nature in us that doesn't want to follow God, that doesn't want to obey Him. And there's this conflict in us. It's like a war. And that is part of the normal Christian experience, this, this conflict, this wanting one thing but also wanting something else. And so this is part of the good fight that Paul is referring to. But there's also this reality that the Bible talks about. We'll look at it a bit later today. It talks about in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are warring against principalities and powers, against spiritual forces. In other words, the Bible does speak of this being named Satan. He's not God's opposite. He simply uh, was an angel who rebelled against God. But when he rebelled against God, according to Scripture, a third of the angels went with him. And they are what we call now, or commonly call now, as demons. And, and, and don't, don't think of like, okay, they're hiding behind a bush or they're wearing a, or, you know, a red outfit would have a red pitchfork, pitchfork or something. But these are beings that, that hate God, that know that they're irredeemable by God. And so what they really want to do is drag as many people away from God as they possibly can. And Paul says we wrestle against these. There's a, there's a conflict with these. Th these are the ones that are pulling us away as well. And we also live in a world we live in a world that, that thinks, well, that thinks, well, for the most part, Christians are a bit nutty. That this idea that there would be one God who we should obey, this idea that there's an absolute truth that's been revealed, that seems nuts to most, at least most of the Western world. And so we have these conflicts, and we need to understand that, that this is a fight that God calls us to fight. God doesn't say, hey, come to me and everything will be smooth. He says, listen, if you're going to follow me, you're going to experience conflict the way Jesus experienced conflict. And so Paul here is talking about this conflict. He's, he's bringing up this conflict. And the reason he's bringing it up, if you've, if you've been with us as we've gone through 2 Corinthians, Paul's mostly been addressing the issues to what we might call the repentive majority that were in Corinth. That is, the believers in the church in Corinth who had listened to what Paul had said before and realized, yeah, we've got to turn back to God. So most of the letter was addressed to what we might call that repentive majority. But there still is this unrepentive minority. These men specifically who were false teachers, who were propagating wrong ideas about who Jesus is and about how God saves people and about what God desires from people. 
And so these false teachers were confusing the Corinthians. These false teachers were causing problems. And Paul's dealing with this, using this kind of war metaphor to talk about, hey, this is part of the conflict. And here's something, again, that we have to recognize. Again, as believers, we don't always necessarily have to be combative or have to be confrontational with individual people who are false teachers, but we definitely have to constantly deal with false ideas. And so part of fighting the good fight is how do we deal with these false ideas? That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at really what I'm going to call basically three rules for our warfare. How do we fight that good fight? How do we deal with these false ideas? Now, Paul, in, this, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 1, he's changing his tone. He will do so for the rest of the letter. And, he, and it's almost as if he might have kind of been dictating the letter to somebody else, and he takes the pen out of the guy's hand, and he says, you know what, I'm going to write the rest of this myself. And he says, now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you, and notice what he says, by the meekness of and gentleness of Christ. Paul says, listen, I'm coming to you and I'm wanting to display to you Christ's character. And this is really the first rule of our warfare. It, when, we, when it comes to fighting the good fight, fighting the good fight does not mean that we become more aggressive or more combative because our first priority is to display the character of Christ. As Paul talks about here, he's coming in the meekness and gentleness. He, Paul never flinched about the authority he had as an apostle. He knew he saw the resurrected Jesus. He knew he was taught the gospel by Jesus. The other apostles saw him with that same kind of authority. He didn't flinch about that authority, but he came with the character of Christ. He was gentle. He was meek. Jesus displayed this himself. Jesus commended his character this way. He described his character this way. Listen to what the Bible says in, in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus was approachable. And one of the reasons crowds followed him was because there was something about him that was attractive the way he dealt with people, how, how he, he treated people as people, individual people. Though he was focused on his ministry to Israel, to the, his other fellow Jews, he said he came to bring the gospel to the Jews, he would deal with Gentiles, which Jews wouldn't do. He would deal with Gentile women, which no Jews, Jewish man would ever do. And so he, he, was, he was building bridges, and he was communicating in a way and doing things out of compassion that people thought, wow, I, I, I can approach this, this one. If he's not just a rabbi, if he's actually the Messiah, if he's actually God's chosen king, I can come to this king. I can approach this one. And so Jesus is encouraging people in Matthew 11 to say, listen, if you are downcast, if you're heavy laden, come to me. I'm gentle. I'm approachable. I'm going to help you. And Paul's saying, listen, this is the character we need to bring forth. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Galatians, the very character that's needed if we're going to restore people when they fall. Listen to this. Paul writes, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual uh, should uh, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So that mindset, that approachability, that, that 
That heart that is communicated by action and by word that says, we want you restored. We want to see you in the best place you can be. That is the heart of Christ. That's what Paul's coming in. Now, it's really important that we recognize we're talking about character here and not personality, not temperament, but character. And there's a difference. Because it's easy for us to get confused. It's easy for us to think that, okay, uh, that, that character of, of Christ or that meekness is, is kind of a temperament. You know what I mean by that? There are people that are quieter. You know, they're, they're sweeter. They're gentler people. I'm not one of them. But there's people, there are people like that, you know? They're, they're just kind of, they're quiet. They're, they're, they're passive. They're non-combative by nature. It's their personality. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Sometimes it's easy for us to get confused. In fact, in the second part of verse 1 of chapter 10, Paul's kind of sarcastically repeating uh, the accusation brought against him, which was <coughs> by these false teachers, they were saying, um, they were basically saying of Paul, well, in, in, in the presence, in our presence, when he's here in front of us, he's lowly and meek, but absent, he, then he becomes bold. Like, oh, when you're face to face, you're kind of a coward, but when you're off writing your letters, then you get all bold with us and all confident. And so Paul's kind of repeating that sarcastically, like, oh, remember, it's me who's supposed to be kind of a wimp when I'm around you, and, and then when I'm, I'm gone, I'm, I'm supposed to be mean, you know? But that wasn't the case. Paul's saying, that's not it. It's just not about me being meek as a person, uh, as a personality. This is about me trying to, ex- just trying to demonstrate the character of Christ, display the fact that I want your restoration. I'm not trying to be combative. Now, the same thing kind of happened to Jesus, didn't it? People took his meekness and they misunderstood it. That's the thing about character, especially a a character that's meek, the character of Christ. It can be easily misunderstood. Remember when Jesus is hanging on the cross, what did his enemies say? What the religious leaders say to him? He's hanging on the cross and they say in Matthew chapter 27, verse 42, they say, oh, he saved others. He himself, he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down uh, from the cross and then we'll believe him. And they're saying, oh, Jesus must be powerless. Oh, that meekness did him no good because he got crucified. If he was really God's king, he would come in power. But sometimes also, we can also assume that Jesus and his meekness was some sort of a pacifist. Oh, Jesus would never confront or hurt anyone. Well, look at what the scripture says. John chapter 2, you guys remember this story? Jesus found in the temple that there were those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. They were corrupting, uh, had a corrupt business to extort God's people. And when he, notice, when Jesus made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Please don't forget that the Jesus of the Bible that we're trusting, though he is gentle, though he is saying, look, I want to help, and he comes in meekness, he is not afraid to crack the whip, literally. Don't think meekness is weakness. Meekness is power under control. This gentleness, this approachableness is not, I'm too afraid to do anything. It's, I want to make sure that what I do is helpful. Do you understand? So Paul's saying that. Paul's basically saying, look, you think that I'm being cowardly, but actually I'm trying to have character like Christ. Don't misinterpret my character. And we do the same thing with Jesus. We misinterpret his character. 
So what happens? What does he say? So Paul writes in verse 2, But I beg you, he says, that when I'm present with you, I might not be bold with confidence, by which I intend to be bold against some. In other words, Paul says, listen, when I'm coming, I'm going to deal with this rebellious minority. I'm going to deal with this unrepentant minority, and I'm going to be bold with them. I'm going to get in their face and say, look, this has got to stop. These wrong ideas that you're propagating about Jesus are no more. You're not going to talk about this stuff anymore with these people. You're not going to manipulate these people. You're not going to try to steal from these people. You're not going to do this anymore. I can imagine if the Apostle Paul were alive today, the first thing he'd do would go to some of the religious broadcasting stations and say, this is going to stop. And so basically what's happening here, and this again, this is important, this is part of displaying Christ's character. Sometimes if we're going to display the character of Christ, it means we need to confront when it's necessary. That's what it means sometimes. Paul here, listen, with a desire to see even this minority group of people to come back to Christ, he is willing to say, listen, I will confront if confrontation is needed. That's hard for us. Well, it's hard for some of us. I confess I have a confrontational temperament. Maybe it's because I'm American. Maybe it's because... I'm bitter about losing my hair. I don't know. But I have this confrontational sort of thing. I, I, I think it's partly being the youngest of, three, of four boys. They beat the crud out of me. It made me kind of like want to fight for myself. You know what I'm saying? But I'm not afraid to say what I think needs to be done. What I have to often do is say, God, you've got to give me grace and gentleness. Help me to be patient and gentle. But that doesn't mean, listen, just because I maybe have a temperament that's not afraid to confront, that it's somehow then for wrong for me to confront. Because it needs to be done when it needs to be done. And so this is it. We're talking about this battle between good ideas and wrong ideas. And let's not be naive. Na- ideas all have consequences. And Paul's saying this is part of fighting the good fight is displaying Christ's character. That is a gentleness and approachableness that might be misunderstood, but also a, a character that's willing to confront if it's necessary. And so he, he says this, and then we get to the second thing, and that is the second thing we, we want to look at, which is utilizing Christ's armor. Look what he says in verse 3. Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now, note those different prepositions, according and in, important words because they change the whole idea of what he means by flesh, okay? So when Paul says uh, he's accused, at the end of verse 2, he says that these false teachers are accusing him of walking according to the flesh, him and his ministry partners. That idea is they're saying, oh, Paul, you know, know, because he's always so gentle with us in person, that just shows that he's motivated by immoral motives. He's motivated by fleshly or sinful things. So when it says according to, that, that preposition changes what he means by flesh. It means that talking about a, a fleshly motivations or carnal or sinful motivations. But when he says we walk in the flesh, what he's referring to in this context is, is the reality of the flesh being just human limitations. The fact that as humans, we can only do so much. So Paul's saying, yeah, I, I, I'll confess, I'm human. I, I'll confess that 
I have to wrestle through things like everybody else has to wrestle through, through things. I confess I can't be all places at all times. I don't know all things, and so i got to listen to both sides of people's arguments. Yeah, we walk in the flesh. We're just human. But he says, but don't think that we war according to the flesh. Don't think that we're fighting these spiritual battles in our own strength. It's so important that we recognize, listen, that Paul, as a great example to us, did not have any faith in human ability. Now, that goes total countercultural to us in the West, doesn't it? Everything in the West is, you can do it. Come on. You can be great. So much preaching today is about that. But Paul had no confidence in the flesh. Look what the Bible says. Listen, Paul said this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision. That's the, that's the we are the people of God is a way of, it's another way of saying that. He says, here's who we are. We worship God in the Spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. And notice, we have no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in our natural human ability. Now, does that mean that we walk around going, I'm such a loser, I can't do anything? No, that's not what it means at all. It means that we recognize that even my best is not going to be enough to fight the good fight. That the enemies that are against me, my own fleshliness, sinful nature, this world that is opposed to the gospel of Jesus, the, this, the, the demonic powers that lie to us constantly, that I am no match for those things. So I'm going to have no confidence in myself for that. And this is important. It's important because... This is not about having low self-esteem at all. It's about having accurate self-esteem. It's about recognizing what your value is. Your value as a person is that you've been made in the image of God. Your value as a believer in Christ is that you've been given the righteousness of God, that he's, he's called you to himself and he's declared you right because of Jesus. That's your value. Your value is not like, now I'm Superman. I can take on anybody. No, no. You're still a sinner. You're still weak. But the good news is Christ is strong because look what he says. He says, look, our, our weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, they're, but what they are, they're mighty in God, he says. They're mighty in God. Paul had no confidence in his own abilities, but he had all confidence in the armor of God in the resources of God. Now, here's what I want you to do, okay? Keep your thumb in 2 Corinthians. That's why God gave you thumbs. Keep your thumb in 2 Corinthians and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. It's probably like five or six pages towards the back of the Bible. So you're in 2 Corinthians and then you're in Galatians and then you're in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. I want to spend just a couple minutes in Ephesians chapter 6 talking about this armor of God. I, I want to be clear, too, the, the word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians for weapons can also be translated armor. It's the same word that's used for armor here in Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6, look at verse 10. Okay, This is also Paul writing. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's the schemes of the devil, the things that the enemy wants to do. 
For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand. Now, we don't have time to get into completely describing these spiritual forces, but let me just kind of say this. There's two, there's two equally dangerous extremes that people go with, that Christians go with with this. One extreme is to say, demons, devils, they don't exist anymore. That's just silly, or they, they never existed. That's just a metaphor the Bible uses for evil in the world. That's one extreme. It's an extreme because the Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus definitely dealt with beings that were evil spirits. There's no doubt about that. Paul here is warning against beings that are evil spirits, and their greatest weapon is not that you make your head spin around and pea soup comes out. That's the movies. No, their greatest weapon is lies. They lie to us. They lie to us by thoughts in our mind. They lie to us by ideas that we pay cable providers to watch. They lie to us through false teachers, religious people. They lie. The other extreme is to blame the devil for everything. That's the other extreme, to think that, okay, if something bad's happening to me or if I'm tempted, it must be because the devil. Well, no, we're tempted because we're sinners. The Bible's really clear about that. We'll see that in a few months when we get into the book of James. We don't want to go to either of those extremes. We want to ignore the reality of demons. We don't want to give demons more credit than they deserve. They're just fallen angels who know they're judged and lied to us. But Paul says we're to stand. Notice verse 14 of Ephesians 6. Paul says, stand therefore. Notice, having girded your waist with truth. Now, what Paul describes in Ephesians 6 here is basically he's using the, the armor of a Roman soldier as a metaphor for the resources of God. You guys follow me in that? Okay. So, obviously, he's not talking about that we actually need to carry around some sort of a shield and that sort of thing. So hopefully you guys get that. This is just a metaphor, okay? But he's using this metaphor. Here's what he says. First thing, gird your waist with truth. What a soldier had to do was, when they were ready for battle, they, had a, they, you know, they wore more like dresses than trousers, okay? So they kind of grab their robe or their dresser thing that they had. They'd kind of pull it up tight, and they had this belt that they would tie it up, and they would tie it with a belt that went around here, and it would hold that thing up tight so they could run, you try to, girls, you try to run in a dress? Hopefully men haven't here tried to run in a dress, but girls, you try, okay, I confess, I've ran in a dress before, but that's another story. But it's a long, long time ago. But the truth is, that's what they did. They wanted to be ready to run, okay? But also what that belt would do is it held all the other armor in place. So the Bible says, or Paul say in this metaphor, that that belt of truth is just that. It's of truth. What is truth? Well, truth is synonymous to reality. It's popular in Western culture now to say, well, truth is whatever you make it. Truth is, is variable. Truth is whatever. One truth to you is one truth to somebody else. No. As far as words are concerned, the English word is concerned, truth is a synonym of reality. Reality is what it is, whether we understand it, can describe it or not. And the truth is, the good news is, the truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the truth. He didn't just come and say, let me teach you truth. He did do that as well. But he said, here's the deal. I am the truth. You can know there is ultimate reality that God is real because of me. 
So when Paul's talking about the belt of truth, or the girding your waist with truth, he's talking about the reality that's been revealed through Jesus. He says, talking about this breastplate of righteousness. Soldiers would put this on, would cover their torso. Very important. If they got, were going to get stabbed, it would keep that stabbing or something from being fatal often. What's the, what's the breastplate protect? Our hearts. What's this righteousness he's referring to? I believe he's referring to the positional righteousness that's a free gift in Christ. That when we receive Christ as our Savior, God doesn't just take our sin, he gives us Christ's righteousness and it protects our hearts. Wait, I don't feel like I'm very good. You're not very good. But how can I be righteous? Because you've been declared righteous because of your faith in Jesus, because of what Jesus did. That breastplate protects our hearts. He talks about this, notice, he talks about having, your, having feet shod in preparation of the gospel of peace. The Roman soldiers wear certain kind of sandals. They would get sort of Norman, normal Roman sandals and they would hammer nails through them for better grip. Of course, this wasn't really comfortable to walk in or march in, but they wore those things because when you're in a fight, you need traction. And so he's talking about having your feet shod with these, uh, these sandals, saying, be prepared to go and share. That's part of how we stand up for the truth. Is that, I don't know if you've experienced this, but the more you share about who Jesus is and what he's done for you, the more you understand and the more faith you have. Have you had that experience? I've had that experience. This is what this is, I think, a, ref- a reference to. He talks about the shield of faith, a small shield you'd hold up that would kind of Keep those darts that the enemy was uh, flying at you from hitting you. It was a mobile kind of a shield. He talks about here the sword, uh, I'm sorry, he talks about here the uh, helmet of salvation. Recognizing that our salvation is a free gift from God that protects our thinking. Wait a second, I don't have to earn the salvation. I could never earn the salvation. It's a free gift. I keep this helmet on when the enemy comes and tells me something different. He talks about the sword of the Spirit. This is the only offensive weapon listed. And he says specifically, the sword of the Spirit is what? The Word of God. That we say what God says. Now, we could get into this in a much deeper way. We don't have time to today. But the point is, going back to 2 Corinthians, the point is, Paul saying, look, I have no, the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal. I have no confidence in carnal weapons. He says the weapons that we have are mighty in God. They're the very resources of God. They're truth. Can you see why I'm saying about this whole idea of ideas? <laughs> this reality of ideas, that there's a battle between good ideas and false ideas? And that what Paul's saying is, listen, he's going to do battle because the false ideas that are coming in are causing problems. Can you see how important it is for us to make sure that we are girded with the belt of truth? That we understand what the truth actually is? Can you see how important it is for us to know how to use the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God? Can you see how important it is for us to have the shield of faith? Faith comes from hearing and hearing the Word of God. All these things tie back to what God has revealed about Himself. Guys, listen. This truth stuff is not up for grabs. We don't get to decide what's true. God decides what's true. God is what's true. And God has to reveal that truth to us. Listen, I'm the first to admit that sometimes it's difficult to 
know what the truth is, to recognize the truth. I've been studying and teaching this book for 24 years, 25 years. And there's still things I come to and go, I'm not really sure what that means or how that works. I'm not sure if I'm seeing that right. So I'm not talking about that. It's just, oh, it's clear as a bell to everybody. But I am saying it's here. Jesus prayed for believers and he said this, listen. He said, sanctify them by your truth. He prayed to God, your word is truth. Guys, this is why we spend so much time making sure that we are in this book and understanding what this book is actually saying. Why? Because we're in a battle. And we have this war going on inside of us, and if we are not, we don't have our armor on, we're going to lose. Now, Paul's wanting to warn the false teachers there in Corinth that, listen, he says, look, the armor we're going to fight with is the truth. So no matter how wise you think you are, what you think you know, God has revealed his truth, he's saying to them, and you need to be prepared. Now, we've got to utilize the armor of Christ. We've got to utilize the truth that God's revealed to us through the person and the work and the words of Jesus. So, fighting the good fight, displaying Christ's character, utilizing Christ's armor. Here's the last one, almost done. Exalting Christ's lordship. This is the one I think is going to be most challenging for us. Look what Paul says. Paul says, here's what the weapons of our warfare are mighty for. Notice verse 4. He says, they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. That's, again, just kind of affirming this military metaphor. He's, that's, he's kind of saying, look, it's for pulling down strongholds. This is what you do if in that day, in Bible times, when one country or faction would go battle against another, they would go to a fortified city, and the first thing they'd want to do is pull down the stronghold. They'd want to attack where they would try to hide the soldiers or hide the grain or hide the money. They'd want to pull down that strong tower. And then by pulling down that strong tower, this whole city would fall with it. In this context, Paul's using this idea of a stronghold or a strong tower as a metaphor for a false teaching, as a metaphor for something that's not true. He's saying, we're gonna, the weapons we have, we're going to pull that down and show that it's not worth the stuff it's built with. He says, notice, it's for casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now, in fighting the, first, in fighting the good fight and dealing with this issue of truth and, and right ideas against wrong ideas, the first thing that Paul wants to exalt here is he wants, he wants the Corinthians to be, well, he, he, he wants the false teachers to know that he's going to reject and pull down any argument that contradicts what God has said about himself. That's what he's going to do. Any argument that, that contradicts what God has said about himself, he's going to pull that down. Now, we're going to see in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 11, Paul talks to the Corinthians about the kinds of things that are creeping in there. In fact, look at that really quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, what does it say? But I fear, he says, lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which we have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with that. So he says, here's what I'm concerned with. You guys might be 
be duped into believing in another Jesus than the Jesus that's been revealed in Scripture. You might be duped and believe in a different spirit or receiving not the Holy Spirit, but a false spirit. Or you might even believe a different gospel. Now, it's interesting because in a sense here, when Paul's talking about casting down these arguments, these things that contradict what God says about himself, he's talking about a different gospel. So anything that wants to contradict the Bible, what the Bible says the gospel is, the gospel is about Christ, God's only begotten son, who lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, rose again three days later as he proclaimed he would, and that pays for our sin and guarantees our forgiveness. Anybody who preaches another gospel, Paul says, we're going to yank that sucker down. It's got to be according to what God has said about himself. I mean, isn't this kind of common sense? Seriously, if you want to know about me, you can look at me and make certain guesses. You can guess, okay, he's probably in his 40s. You can guess and say, you know, he likes to eat. You can guess and and maybe think that, uh, you know, whatever, he likes to dress younger than he is, I don't know. You You can look at him and you can guess certain things about me. But then you can hear me speak. You hear me speak and you can guess more things. He's not from around here. He likes to talk. He's got a big mouth. You can guess things. If I start talking about things like, yes, I'm married to Sarah, we have five children, blah, 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 you know more about me. The bottom line is, the way you're going to know about me is just a mere man is if I self-disclose to you. I have to tell you what I'm like. Right? Isn't that the way it works? How much more the creator God? We can't guess what he's like. He has to say, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. And the good news is he's done that through Jesus. Can you see why Paul would be so hot and saying, look, man, we're going to tear down any other gospel that, com- that, that, that wants to counterfeit that or take away from that? Listen to what the scripture says. The Bible says, in the Psalm chapter 138, verse 2, it says, I will worship toward your holy temple, and I will praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. Notice, for you have magnified your word above all your name. Do you know what that means? When the Bible refers to a person's name, it means their, their revealed character, their reputation. What God's saying here is he's not saying we should worship the Bible What he's trying to say is this. Look, you may have heard things about me, but what I'm I'm exalting that makes me worthy to be praised is what I've actually said about myself in my word. This is why this book is so important. This is why what we feel about God isn't nearly as important as what God says about himself. Are you guys following me? And Paul says we're going to cast down any arguments to the contrary. But he also says this, listen. Listen. Paul says, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Notice he says, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. He's continuing this military metaphor. Christ is the conqueror, and he's going to take all these ideas that are false ideas, and he's going to take them prisoner. And the application to us is this what we need to do. Listen. We need to confront any ideas, whether they're coming from the outside or coming from the inside, we need to confront any ideas that refuse submission to Jesus. Again, remember we're talking, when I say confront, I'm not talking about being combative. 
I'm talking about being real. I'm talking about the character of Christ. It says, look, you need to think the right way. Again, Paul says, look, I'm afraid you're going to receive another Jesus. You know, it's amazing how many Jesuses there are out there. I mean, there's the hippie Jesus, you know. Hey, man, it's all groovy. It's all cool. I died for you, man. Everything's okay. There's, there's the, the, your homeboy Jesus. Me and you are cool. Yeah, we're buddies. Let's hang out. There's the, the religious Jesus, you know, who's kind of spacey look in his eyes and kind of out there and hasn't eaten in 40 days and is still hanging on a cross. And then there's the Jesus of the Bible, the one who made the whip and cleansed the temple, the one who, when his own disciples, one of the shoe-away children, took them in his arms and blessed them, the one who healed the sick and raised the dead, the one who had power over nature, the one who predicted his death and resurrection and came through with it, the one who claimed to be king of kings and lord of lords, the one who said this, listen to this, these are the words of Jesus. I'm not, I don't even have to say anything, but read them. It's clear. Listen, Jesus said this, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you what, uh, whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the streams beat vehemently against that house, and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. Do you get that? He's saying, look, if I'm Lord, you should do what I say, and that's where the stability is going to come from. The stability is going to come from obeying me as Lord. Look at what he says here. Or here's the other option. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without foundation against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. You see, Paul's saying to these false teachers in Corinth, listen, when I get there, I'm going to confront any ideas that you guys are propagating that are saying that we don't need to obey Jesus because he is Lord and he is good and he is trustworthy and he calls us to obey him. Full stop. Hey, as the old song goes, you got to serve somebody. How do you pick who you serve? The idea, the prominent idea in Western culture is you pick yourself. It's up to you. But the biblical idea is Jesus proved himself as the worthy one, as King of kings and Lord of lords, as the one who should be obeyed. Can I just say before we go any further, we're almost done, but can I just say this? If Servants Church is your church home, let me be really clear to you as your pastor, okay? As one of your pastors. Obeying Jesus is not an option. We don't obey to be saved. I'm not saying that you always are going to obey. I'm definitely not saying I always obey. What I'm saying is it's not an option. I heard a preacher say it this way. I thought it was really good. Uh, he said, you know, if I tell my daughter, go clean your room, 
And she comes back an hour later and says, Dad, listen, I memorized what you said. Go clean your room. Or, hey, Dad, some of our friends, we're going to gather together and we're going to study what it might look like if we cleaned our room. <laughs> Dad, I can say, I can clean, I'm going to clean my room in Greek. <laughs> no child would try that with their parent. Their parent would go, uh, just go clean your room. We don't obey to be right with God. We obey from a position of being right with God because of the gift of salvation in Jesus, but obedience is not an option. And what Paul's saying is it's false teachers who teach that. It's a wrong idea if we think, oh, I don't have to obey. That might be good if you're a super Christian or a pastor or a loudmouth American, but you don't have to obey if you're just a normal guy. No, you do. And we need to confront any idea, either whether it comes from us or someone else that thinks that Jesus is anybody else but Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. He is a good Lord. <laughs> I mean, Jesus who is Lord is the same Jesus that John felt comfortable enough with laying his head on his chest. He's the same Lord who will wipe the tears away from our eyes. He is a good and gentle and patient, infinitely patient Lord. But he's Lord. And what he says goes. So Paul says that, we're almost done. Verse six. He also says, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. It's kind of a difficult verse to deal with, I'll be honest. Here's what I think it means. I think what Paul's basically saying is, once all of you repentant majority are realizing, yep, we're going to obey God in this, we're going to trust Him, He's good, then the ones that are left over that don't want to obey, there's punishment. There's consequences. Now, the consequences wouldn't have been being whipped or hurt. It would have been saying, you, you are no longer part of this church. You cannot be here. You're a false teacher. Have any of you ever been, don't raise your hands, but have any of you ever been in a church that actually does that? We're so afraid. We're so afraid of what people think. Paul says, look, I'm not afraid because here's the reality. We're going to remove any influence that comp competes with Christ. Any different spirit we're going to expose and remove. Paul ended his life being able to say, I fought the good fight. He was willing to sacrifice. Paul himself, listen, though he was an apostle, though he, he did, um, there were miracles done through Paul that were unusual miracles. We're reading about that in the book of Acts. Though he had a biblical right to be paid for the ministry, Paul never exalted himself. He never received a paycheck. He would minister, he would, he would make tents during the day and minister at night. And we're going to see later on in 2 Corinthians where he talks about his experiences about being beaten and shipwrecked and persecuted and not trusted. And You know why he did that? He was fighting for the souls of the people who were hearing him. He was wanting to make sure that they had the truth. Because Jesus said, listen, you shall know the truth. In other words, it's recognizable. It's definable. You shall know the truth and, he said, the truth will set you free. It's liberating. Paul 
fought the good fight, not with his fists, but by the power of God and the truth of the gospel, he fought the good fight to set captives free. We're called to do the same thing. We're called to fight for our own freedoms, and we're called to fight for the freedom of others. I don't want to embarrass the person, but someone wrote a really good blog this week about this. Tough love. About sometimes that love has to be honest and confront. We need to learn this. Folks, listen. If you're believing in a Jesus other than the Jesus of the Bible, please turn from that. If you think you've received the Spirit and that Spirit is leading you into weird and wacky things that are outside of Scripture, please turn from that. If you believe anything other than the gospel, that God in His grace came to this earth in the form of a man and died a death that paid for our sins and rose the third day like He said He would would do to guarantee that He could declare us innocent, If you believe any other gospel, please turn from it. Because none of that is, anything other than that is not true and it won't set you free.